This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by This Place, 150 Years Retold Through Indigenous Perspectives. From High Water Press, www.highwaterpress.com. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry. Hi. And our very special guest, Nigan Sinclair. Bonjour, hello. Who is, uh, I'm, we just have to put this right out there in the front. We were on a, um, we were launching a book together, and there was about eight of us there, and everyone was talking about a time I invited them onto the podcast. Except, except for me. Except. Actually, I turned to the panel and I said, how many people have been on the podcast? And everybody put up their <laughs> hand except for me. Wow. Oh, and it hurt. It hurt. But, oh, is he still on? No. Yeah, he is. See? We still have you on our list of gets. See? Uh, I don't believe that. I think you did that this morning. No. No. That's what I think. No. And I noticed that Jen, who's on there, we want to bring has her back. already been on. She's true. We wanted her back. <laughs> she was on episode like four. Now, I want you to know she's that... She's one of our most popular podcasts was her section. It, is she, she should be. She's yeah. brilliant. Um, but I want you to know that I listen <laughs> all the time. I'm, a, I'm probably one of your number one fans. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and I've, I put it on because I drive so much. Like I'll fly to a city, Toronto or Vancouver, and then drive six hours to a reserve. Uh, to speak to young people or to teachers or something like that. And I just have like multiple podcasts. So in between Canadian true crime murder stories. Oh, we're the light. We're the my, light. My uh, 1980s wrestling nostalgia podcast. You're, you're sandwiched right in there. Perfect. Wow. I think that's where we want to be. Right? I think, yeah, that's actually, <laughs> we're going to rewrite the bio for our podcast <laughs> for where it should fit. Um, so for the dear listener, uh, Nigan, how did we meet? I was trying to remember. I took your workshop. Yeah, with see, the that's my first memory of you Manitoba too. Arts Association or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I've always, like, I'm a massive comic uh, fan. Have still have my boxes that I've lugged around to, like, 14 different houses now. And uh, I'm, I'm a DC guy. But anyways, so... Uh, and anyways, so I've always wanted to write... Comic Comics books. are a spectrum, you know. Like it's okay. You can, well, you can I'm now a, a Marvel guy, guy now that I'm older. Now that you're older. But I was when I was a kid, I was all DC guy, uh, Justice League, like all the. Now right. I find that actually um, kind of sickening, all the DC stuff, which is weird because, anyways. Uh, but uh, I took a workshop. You were doing it. Was completely blown away by it. Uh, and the first two hours, I think you said, "Here's how to make a comic book from beginning to end," and you had like. This massive piece of paper on a wall that oh, had yeah, right, 82 steps. Yeah. But I couldn't believe, even though it was 82 steps, how much fun every step looked like. And then you, you had us doing it yeah. within like an hour. And, and uh, funny enough, I had, I knew about half the crowd there from either I had taught them as students. I'm a high school teacher, former high school teacher at Kelvin. So a lot of my students were there from, uh, and then also a lot of my friends had just happened to come into this workshop. And that's, and then we went for lunch. That's right. Oh, and, uh, and ever since. And then I invited you to my class because I was teaching a class on comic books, and there it was. And there and ever since. So for the dear listener, uh, Nigan is a former high school teacher. He teaches at U of M. Is your sabbatical still? It ends today. Ends today. So I am, this is my first task back to work is coming to your podcast. Oh, my. Oh, my. 
Oh my, so you were on sabbatical writing um, uh, columns for the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, Still pretty, am. Pre, pre, won a pretty prestigious, I can't say that word today, prestigious award. So I was columnist of the year in Canada for the National Newspaper Awards about, I was named about a month ago or so. Yeah. No big deal. You have a, f uh, a handful of comics publishing credits. You have uh, lots of academic publishing credits. You constantly are being asked to speak at universities and organizations and schools about all kinds of different things. You want to tell the listener? Why, why would we ask you to the school again? To a school? Yeah. Uh, I work a lot on the, uh, implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, how to teach them. I've written a curriculum for Inspire on uh, how to implement them across different elements. And, uh, and then I also do a lot of work with literature. So my PhD is in Indigenous literature. And specifically what I work on is on, um, well, I guess you would call it graphic texts, but what I call it is just more... Uh, a spectrum of indigenous literature, like the oral tradition and comic books are the same thing. Oh, and so that's wow. what that's what I work on. And I, I'm teaching a course next week at the University of Winnipeg on this with uh, post-bac students. I work a lot with educators, so I worked with about 15,000 educators last year on wow. different elements across the country from New Brunswick all the way to BC. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about, you have a pretty big collection of representation of indigenous uh, cultures in comic books. Yes. From the early history of comics right to the present day. So I, I, I don't have it in my hold anymore because right. I donated it all to the University of Manitoba. So we have a collection at the University of Manitoba called the Mazna Biagay. In other words, Mazna Biagay means beautiful. Uh, it's the same word we use for art that we use for uh, beautiful writing, like a poem. So uh, oh. so that word, mazna biege, it means writing, but it, it's a kind of like, it's a beautiful. Like a representation. Yeah, right. uh, it, well, it's, it's like an image, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something that evokes an image, uh, or what we call metonymic, which is that you point to something. That's what the language does, indigenous languages do. They, they point to ideas. So a word doesn't just mean a fixed, concept it's like it points to you get you getting you to do something and what's the word you use to describe that phenomenon so it's called metonymic it's Meta a very literary I just high a new word, word. Yeah, yeah, so it's just, it it's what well it's already what comics do <laughs> it well, gets this you to is do why the I'm work excited. Yeah. yeah right yeah. yeah and it gets you to do the work uh, because a comic is not just a comic it's it's pointing you to think in a certain way. It's, it's right. about time or to make, it, make a story in your head. Well, and an image is like a picture of anything is a mnemonic device, which triggers your memory on all the times that you have encountered that object. So if it's a picture of a tree, you actually remember all the times. You don't see that tree. You see all the trees you ever saw. So, when... yes, exactly. And so in the lodge, uh, where the ceremonies that I attend, uh, that's what our songs are intended for you to do. Like our songs aren't intended to listen to. You have to, what, what they say, dance it or live it. And what you're really doing is when you hear the song, you're living the life. You're, that's why you have to dance with the song. And the same thing with comic books. So you see the image, but then you have to think of your experience and you have to taste the tastes and smell the smells and think, think the thinks. And your eyes dance along the page as a result of those lines. Yeah. yeah. So huh. not to get too... Uh, that's really what I do when I try to teach about comic books. I try to show how comic books, indigenous comic books particularly, are like songs. They're, they're like ways to invite you to do work.
Get on the horn. Tell everybody who's not in tactical to evac this facility immediately. Yes, sir. So these collections of images, though, are uh, that you donated weren't really the most um, flattering representation, I would say. No, well, I mean, in, in the Masnabiege collection at U of M, it's like... Uh, we've because there is this massive misrepresentation of indigenous people, about three quarters of the collection is what we might say really inappropriate or at the worst of it racist. Stuff like Turok, right? Like, or, mm. or like uh, stuff like Conan or stuff like uh, Lone Ranger and Tonto, like really problematic representations. And then there's kind of this middle gray area, and there's some kind of interesting stuff like Cowboys versus Aliens. Right. And the indigenous representations of that comic book are really complicated. Like, they're not all terrible. They're, they're quite terrible, but then they also have some really interesting parts to it. That uh, Because at the end of the day, it's the indigenous peoples that really save the cowboys. And, and so even though it's written by a non-indigenous person, there's some interesting things happening in that. And then there's indigenous uh, comic books. So that's about a third of the collection. And... Uh, that's yeah, and it's like people like David Robertson and Jen Storm and Tasha Spillett and so I th you know. yeah, I was going to say that I think our dear listeners who are familiar with indigenous or if you want to run a um, like a mental checklist of the indigenous characters you ever saw in comics, I think that what we're talking about when we're talking about these representations that are problematic is something that I see happen with a lot of cultures that are written by essentially the Western eye. And it's that you take whatever that culture is known for and turn it into their superpower. Like it's a direct one-to-one, -one, right? So um, like Shaman on the Alpha Flight, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His name is Shaman and he has a medicine bag and he pulls magic things out of his medicine bag. That's like somebody knowing only a tangential idea related to an indigenous culture and saying, ah, we'll make that a superhero. Whereas the other characters on Alpha Flight have powers not related to their culture. Right. I, mean, I don't you know. Just name I, them. Yeah. So like, you just name them all. There's like hundreds of indigenous representation, John Proudstar and Manitou Raven. And, and like I just keep going through all the major ones anyways with the major. Uh, um, and they all have these kind of they're boiled down to real simplistic they use the word trope, but really they're use one element of your culture, then just boil it down to a nothing. Right. And then just kind of make them, then exaggerate that to a place where it becomes a caricature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It would be like if Captain America only did school shootings, right? It's like it's represented, it's like this is a thing that happens in America that America is known for in the news and some people in other parts of the world only know about America through this thing and they're like, oh, well, that's what, that's, we're going to make a character to represent. Kind of like Asians in comic books are always ninjas. Uh, yeah, just, it's just, like the worst, yeah. right? They're, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and indigenous people are always mystical. They're always going on vision quests. They always have magical powers, especially if they're Mayans. They're magical powers of uh, decapitation or human sacrifice or whatever. Uh, I have this huge collection of different... I'm really interested in the ways that really popular characters engage with indigenous people and uh some of my favorite stories are when batman discovers that the bat cave is an indigenous burial ground and he's able to transport magically in time to go back and save indigenous people because indigenous people can never save themselves they always need someone whether that be the movie avatar or dances with wolves or batman in the 1930s it's always like i love those stories because they really exemplify a paranoia that's happening within culture when indigenous people stand up for themselves and so 
in the 1970s, for example, there's oh, Superman gets captured by indigenous peoples uh, because there's this massive paranoia in the United States about indigenous peoples being active and engaging and doing things like taking over Alcatraz in San Francisco. Uh, and, and Wounded Knee and occupying and being on the nightly news. So naturally you capture Superman. And because uh, at the exact same time what's happening political in society happens in comic books. Comic books are like, for me, the litmus test of how society views indigenous people. So what's changed? Has it gotten better, hopefully? And uh, what's, what's, can you give us an example of that in, in more modern storytelling? Yeah, uh, so my, what Great I'm teaching question. next week is I'm teaching the comic book Scalped by Jason Aaron. Now that's a really interesting comic book because it's trying to encapsulate uh, a, a kinder representation of indigenous people, but it still settles on these really problematic, simplistic views of it. So for instance, uh, there, there, it's a story about a... Uh, 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 guy who comes back he's a half-blood guy and he comes to his home reserve and he discovers that the chief is also the ceo of the casino who's basically running a slum in the in the community in the place in south dakota and uh, his daughter is the head prostitute it's like all these really terrible representations of indigenous people and he's here there to sort of clean it up but uh, it turns out that the chief is a former activist who tried to change things within the community and then got defeated or hurt or and then uh, had an affair with the mother of the main character who's trying to clean up the reserve and anyways there's all this like so uh, it's at least it sounds at least i haven't read scalped but it's been like in my radar for a while um it sounds at least like they're trying to put some layers in. Yeah, like they're trying to basically put indigenous peoples into history, but they just cherry pick the history. So you're still not quite full human beings, but you've got some activism in there. So you've got like this kind of hint of colonialism or violence against indigenous people. And then, but then it just settles on this real, at the end of the day, indigenous peoples are all just a bunch of slumlords and uh, addicts and alcoholics. And it's a really problematic story. But then of course, if you see the whole arc, of Scalped, because it was a limited run of, I think, uh, 64 issues or whatever it was. Was it a Vertigo book? Was vertigo yeah. Run, yeah. Uh, and so by the end, Indigenous peoples had invested themselves within that, that story, so it actually got very interesting in the last later stages. So hold on. What you're saying is that an, audi an Indigenous audi audience showed up to read those stories, and they spoke to that a little bit or recognized so for, that for there was... For the past two decades or so, there's been this explosion of indigenous comic creators. Yeah. And uh, while there ha they were there before, there wasn't this massive upsurge um, of indigenous comic creators like you see today. Right. And uh, people like Steve Sanderson were that with the first wave of that. Um, people... And I, uh, I think, just to interject here, I think part of this is it's different than what happened in the 80s. We had this huge black and white comics boom in the 80s with tons of independent titles and so lots of new voices right showed up into comics during that time we have this independent like the kickstarter world and the online world and the webcomic world has meant that a lot more people the barrier to entry is much lower if you just want to get your story in front of an audience so i so think yeah like 2000 or so this uh, one of the main forces in canada has been this uh it's really started from like health issues and youth literacy issues so what they found was the indigenous people, the young indigenous peoples weren't 
reading as much. And so to promote literacy, they created comic books and, and this one unit out of Alberta called the Healthy Aboriginal Network. It's called something else now, but um, they, uh, they created this uh, massive amount of indigenous-themed comic books, but to deal with social issues like sexual health and... Nick Burns and was working on some of that stuff, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's mostly Steve... The, Steve Sanderson created a comic book called Darkness Calls, and it was to deal with youth suicide. And it was all about uh, a Wendigo comes to take a young boy's life, and he... Uh, becomes Wessa Kachak, which is the Cree, the Cree kind of mythical slash. Um, he would be a superhero. He becomes a superhero, and they have this battle over this young boy's life, and you can see it on uh, on YouTube. And they t did things like translated into indigenous languages and so on. Anyways, that created such a massive interest of comic books amongst young people. Then you had, I think, people started to see that it's marketable. Right. So and then people like Renegade Entertainment in Alberta, and then locally here, High Water Press with yeah. David Robertson, noticed that they could make a lot of money right. off of uh, Indigenous comic book creators because not only do we have interesting stories, but stories that have been generally untapped, that have some of the most interesting richness, uh, that while often people are talking about robots and monsters, we already have all that. I'm scared, Pancho. Bullshit. You ain't afraid of no man. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. So one of the things that I've learned in working with Dave Robertson and working with High Water Press is this idea of shaking your head loose of the idea that when you're thinking of an indigenous culture, that they're all, that there's this pan-indigenous culture, that one magical idea responds across all of these things. There's all these different... Um, it's very similar to where... Um, on my father's side in Belarus, there's all these different uh, sort of original tribal elements and each of their representations of their mythologies are very subtle depending on what side of the street you're on, right? And not, and they absolutely, like my, <laughs> uh, my uncle Vasek hates the idea that the Russian fur hat, which is a Cossack um, convention, is applied to Belarusians or to Russians in general. Right? It's this idea that one thing should not stand for all of them. But what you're saying is if you allow an indigenous person with a voice that is specific to a region and an idea and let them tell a story that's not supposed to be encapsulating of everything and just let it be a story, people will show up to read that because it's not reductive but expansive. Is that what we're getting at here? Yeah, I mean, like people, <laughs> the thing that I hate the most is when, uh, and sometimes indigenous writers say this, is say, don't think of me as an indigenous writer, think of me as a writer. Well, the default position of writer is inevitably to, to erase your indigenousness. Right. Therefore, I'm saying to be an indigenous writer is to be the most expansive thing. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's yeah. why you should be proud of it, because right. what I think writers have pro proven over the past 15 years is that to be an indigenous writer is to be expansive, is to talk about stars and the future and science and uh, ecology and to talk about our traditional stories as superhero stories as well. I remember my father, when I was a kid, said that one of the biggest problems that he saw within writing is there was no images for young indigenous peoples to see themselves. And when I was growing up, like I said, I loved Justice, Justice League of America. I don't think I ever saw any indigenous people in anything. And if they were, they would be one panel and usually 
off to the side, nothing really, what really mattered were all of these rich white people. And that influenced me in lots of ways in which then I saw myself as trying to attain some of those goals when I was young, when I was right. 12, 13, 14. And it took me a long time to deconstruct that and to think, oh no, being an Indigenous person is to also uh, be a writer and to be a father and to be a professor. So. One of the things my dad said is we need our we need people to write about superheroes to make role models for our young people and and but the thing about the, I think the most interesting thing about indigenous comic books now is that our superheroes look like regular people right because indigenous peoples if you think about all the things we've been through over the past five hundred years we are superheroes we are yeah. resilient. Uh, the fact that we speak our languages, even though we have massive assaults and attacks and undermining policies and practices, and we have a law in Canada that bans banned our languages and our cultures. It's a post-apocalyptic culture. And so, right? well, I think some people say it like that, but I say it's, we have experienced an apocalypse, but we have still endured, right? And right. We're, we're still... We're still being, we're still speaking our languages. We're still being fathers. We're still picking medicine. We're still having the ceremonies. So, regular Indigenous peoples are superheroes. So let me ask you a question. Okay, so this is, I think, something that, let's imagine Justin and I are brainstorming a comic book right now, and uh, we wanted to include an Indigenous character in that book. Is this something where, in the, in the great tapestry of making stories? we should say this is not our lane to play in, or if we wanted to make room for that kind of storytelling, how do you do it in a way that is not reductive? Like what would be your advice to people who are like, hey, I want to include some indigenous characters in this graphic novel I'm working on. Should we not? Well, the first thing I would say is to not include would be to participate in the erasure of our of our presence yeah perfect so so i would say you have to yeah you must <laughs> you have to right. and if you're going to be on these lands let's say you're going to write a story about winnipeg if you write a story about winnipeg with no indigenous people right like what have you done yeah what what have you participated <laughs> in right, fair point and so therefore uh i think you have an obligation to if you're going to accurately reflect the life here in this territory in this place called kanata the village the fact that it's named after indigenous an indigenous word, uh, you have to include indigenous people. So therefore, now you got to do the work, right? right? So that means you got to get to know indigenous people. You got to work with them. And here's the reality: you already do, right? Yeah. So you work, you live beside, work beside. Um, maybe right now you're talking to an indigenous person. Yeah. And so that means when you spend time, then you you listen. You do what my uncle says, which is listen twice as much as before you speak. Right. And that's where you begin to learn and then engage and then think. And then you create stories involving Indigenous peoples that are whole, that are um, erotic, that are interesting, that are political, that are complicated, that aren't like simplistic Tonto, uh, Kimosabi kind of images. <laughs> so people tend to write what they know, though, right? They tend to write what they, their experiences, and, and, that, that's what, and that's what you're saying. Isn't is that reflective. the problem? The yeah. problem has been, until very recently... Uh, when I was a kid, and I would invite you guys, have, did you ever see an Indigenous person in literature, for example? Uh, in school, we read it April Raintree. We oh, read April Raintree, so that's right. a very early 
Uh, but um, that's great. Right. But I never did. And so that was presented to us. Um, we had uh, my father did work with some uh, indigenous groups, and so I ended up meeting some elders. But I didn't know that's who I was meeting. They were just you know they were just people at the time. And then he would say after you know like that was an important person that you just met, and I'd be like okay, I was only nine, so like you know they were kind and nice to me. But um, so I think that's part of like. But as soon as I hit university, but the representation of indigenous culture was almost absent unless I sought it out. So I took specifically a course uh, that looked at how treaties were handled in uh, Manitoba and in Canada in general. And the big eye opener for me was looking at documents that we have uh, in Canada that prove that um, Nazi party officials came to Canada to look at how we ran our reserves as a model for building concentration yeah, same camps. Same thing with apartheid as well. So, right. So apartheid was built on the idea of the reserve system. and, and I mean, these right. are not uh, proud moments for the country. No, they're not proud moments. <laughs> but I, it was also a, a moment where I was like, this, this, what are you, you know, like the teacher is telling me this thing and you're, you're sort of inflated with your Canadian pride at a certain point. And then it does feel, and I think this is what happens to a lot of people, it feels like an assault on their way of life to be shown this bad thing that they weren't a part of. Like, I felt, you know, there's all those complicated things that people joke about the white liberal guilt, right? I was like the perfect example of that white liberal guilt where I was like, figured I was pretty woke and then I heard this story and I was so ashamed of all the stuff that went along with it. But then I kept saying to myself, well, I don't do those things. I don't act that way. I don't think, but it made me reevaluate that stuff. But I was guilty of being uh, super into the character Shaman from Alpha Flight. He was one of my favorite characters on Alpha Flight, but he was a representation that was tacitly false, like paper thin, you know? Like, I don't think ever did they ever mention. Um, and if the writers of Alpha Flight did, I apologize, but it never sunk into young me, you know, where he was from, what type of indigenous culture he was from. Or that he would have been be. impacted by the Indian Act, yeah. therefore locked under reserve until 1961. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, like, I think that what you're pointing out is the general, the, the, the general problem with including indigenous anything in stories is that most Canadians have been and continue to be uh, taught very simplistic, if at all. Right. Uh, and that leads to stereotypes, that leads to uh, problematic tropes, really boiling things down to the kind of images that you see on Captain Canuck, right? right. Where Indigenous people show up as kind of ornaments. It reminds me a lot of, I'm doing work right now with the study of women in comic books uh, and how women are always used as to forward the male protagonist they're usually so the women in refrigerators yeah, so yeah stuff yeah, about frigid. so yeah basically that women die like when stacy so that spider-man can yeah have a so moment or a complex for the dear moment, listener so. who wants to do some googling later to expand your comic knowledge there's this term in comics lately uh which we call fridging which means to introduce a character uh who would be sympathetic or representative of a social group to create sympathy and then they're killed 
which is uh, referencing, I believe, which, ah, oh man, what comic book? Women was? in Refrigerators is yeah, like this website. Yeah, but it was specifically website. Identity Crisis. There was a comic book where that happened. Where Green they, Lantern's girlfriend yeah. was killed and then thrown into a refrigerator. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, Justin uh, is just horrified by the whole train of this conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is a really big deal in terms of the treatment of women, but Indigenous peoples too, right? So Indigenous peoples are usually the ornaments and they're the foils or they're the oppositional force in order to drive the character t forward. So for instance, Superman is captured by indigenous peoples just to show that Superman likes Indians too, right? Because at the end of the day, they capture him and then he decides to fight for the nation against the oil company or whatever it was. And, and so it's like this, uh, at the end of the day, indigenous peoples are left in a bloody mess, but Superman continues on as in better off as a result. And uh, that's kind of the way that indigenous peoples have been rep represented until recently. You might think that you're scared, but you're not. That isn't fear. That's your sharpness. Now, I think it's impossible to begin to do these things anymore, even though we do have six more Avatar movies coming of really problematic... Uh, mystical indigenous be peoples better. with blue blue tails. Might be better. I doubt it. But uh, the the possibility is less now because we have this massive upsurge of indigenous comic book creators. And to be honest, most of them are in Winnipeg. Right. Uh, oh. It has become the center. Like we have become the center of indigenous comic book creation. And it was exemplified in a, in an anthology that we just put together which is where the book launch came, came from this place and yeah. so it's 150 years retold from indigenous points of view and they're fictional but they're based in history and it's 150 years there's a story about 200 years in the future there's a story about the metis resistance uh in 1871 you know and so on and so forth uh yeah like i have a story in that book about oka and I tell it. It's a fictional retelling of 1990 through 2005. And for the international listener who doesn't know what Oka is, breakdown in like somebody wants something, complications ensue. Yeah, breakdown Oka for so them. So in the summer of 1990, uh, a town called Oka in Quebec wanted to expand a golf course from nine holes to 18 holes. But on those nine holes they wanted to develop, it was based on Haudenosaunee burial grounds and sacred territory that they used for ceremony and so they created a, a blockade um uh, Haudenosaunee people created a blockade uh to uh, fight that development and it led to a massive standoff eventually a police officer being killed by his own bullets um uh, it was four months i think and so i just can't remember the exact amount of time but i think it was 100 and 26 days or something and so uh but yeah so i, I retell uh, moments from that and i had to go to the actual people who were there people ellen gabriel who was one of the spokespeople of that uh, mo movement and she participated within the comic and i i uh, worked with an illustrator called andrew lodwick uh his first time ever really doing a story and uh he was awesome and it was great and you did a story too what was your story on again uh, we did uh, so um uh, it was a story that looked at a nook culture uh, during World War II, or just the beginning of World War II, like in that transitional period. And it was about a, uh, uh, a young girl who is basically a trader comes in and wants to know her name. And she gives her real name to him, which is a bad idea, it turns out, in a nook culture to share your 
true name with somebody who uh, you can't trust, and it opens her up to this sort of spiritual journey. Uh, Rachel and Sean uh, had presented a script that described all of these multi-layer representations of a character. So a character present, and then a spiritual representation of that character over top, and then a literal representation of their region over top, like a map over top of that, and then their emotional representation in some kind of color or like spray or what, like there was all of these things and the editor Laura was like, you know, Gregory, I think you are the one that should do this one because that's how you work is in all of these layers. So that's how we came to work on this. Not because I had any working knowledge of Inuk culture. In fact, until that time, I was just using Inuit as the blanket term, right? And they were like, no, specifically, we're talking about this region. We're using these peoples. It's this kind of word. Don't use this. Um, universities archives because they've got it wrong use this universe universities archives they have collaborators that have got it right um, and it was a learning journey and all of this would happen by satellite phone once every month or so we would be able to communicate when they had time and we had time to work it together to they would call via satellite phone from the north to the partisan main offices and then we would nice go through the stuff and so it was a really um it was that place where I think a lot of people who want to be an ally find themselves worried, here's where I'll get it wrong. Like I'm trying to walk the talk and like make myself available and do it this way. But I also have a workflow. I have a schedule that I keep a certain way. I have all of these kinds of things. And so making this place work into that, I thought was gonna be hard. Like I thought that would be the hard part. And instead, it was one of the most well-written, most interesting scripts. It's one of the only scripts I've ever gone back for fun to read after a project was finished. Yeah, and you texted me an image and said, I want to work more on this or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. yeah. like uh, those kind of moments uh, of collaboration can be really beautiful because what you're doing is you're undoing 150 years of, of well, 150 plus years that's still happening of a dominating relationship of where Canadians are the fixing the problem and the problem is Indians, right? The problem are indigenous people. That's a story ingrained into all of us. Well, and because this was a story about a shamanistic experience, I kept saying like, well, which part of this is real and which part of this is the imagined part and which part of this is metaphor? And they could just kept saying yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, I would be like, OK, like, but I still have to draw it. And they're like, yeah, that's your that's your challenge. Figure out a way to represent all three of those things together, both true, imagined, potential, as if it's all happening, because it did all happen, whether yeah. they right in. in uh, so I work a lot on the indigenous literature. And uh, what I tell students is there's no such thing as fiction and nonfiction in indigenous life. There's just. There's just being. And uh, that's a cultural in, in perspective, our stories right? That's are, different for us. The best way to understand stories are, there are the sacred stories, which are the stories that we might call fiction, but they're not fiction. They're stories about reality, meaning they're stories about uh, talking animals and Wenaboju recreating, uh, recreating the land that we all stand on, or um, stories about the moon and the sun creating a treaty with each other. Those are what's called the sacred stories, the Atazukonic, and then there's the Dibajamoanun, which are the stories based in time. Uh, they're stories like your uncle eating too much turkey and then throwing up all over himself. Like, <laughs> the, but here's the thing, a Dibajamoanun 
can become an agricultural <laughs> <laughs> I got excited there. Uh, I, I got knocked the microphone over. But the Dabajimoanan can become an Atazuconic, and an Atazuconic can become a Dabajimoanan. There's, there's not, they're not oppositional. Like how they're built in bookstores, where you're like, here's the fiction, right. here's the nonfiction, here's what they're going the real stuff, and here's the not real stuff. For Anishinaabe, for us, there is a fullness to story that needs each other. Right. And I'd say that actually fiction and nonfiction are arbitrary, made up categories, anyways. Okay, hold on now. Hold on now. It's, that's, this is difficult. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you uh, conceptually. But in practice, it's like, for example, Justin and I want to make a story about robots, right? And a person totally in a made up world. That's a totally about the real. Right? But it is made of the real stuff, right? And so this is that age-old argument that science fiction is really just talking about now in a way that makes people willing to listen because they think it's made up. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, like War of the Worlds is all about what's happening in the world at that time. Yes. Like, you can't just write, like, War on the Worlds wouldn't have happened any other time except for that time. So, like, I don't care about any other story. Stories are always situated in times and places. Um, that's what the Atazuconic, uh, that's how they become Dabajimoanan. That's how the sacred stories get placed in a specific time because they're told in a certain way, they highlight a certain area, they address a certain person, so therefore they talk about a certain element. It's always placed in a time versus uh, imagining so can, that it's forever can, made up. I can see now your relationship to representation in comics now because then the image itself, right? The artist is drawing a certain place and time which sets that story visually, but then the words themselves can be any period of time, right? People can say those things no matter when or where they are. And it gives that push-pull between those two ideas. But they're always located. That's why we do uh, territorial acknowledgements before we have a sporting event or we have a meeting or we do a storytelling. Because we're talking about this time, this place here, and how are we going to live going forward. Right. And how we're going to live going forward is we're going to tell stories, we're going to play sports, we're going to sing songs to one another. And those things happen in that time and that place. That's mm. just a good comic book. A yeah. good comic book is all about the place and the time in which it's told. I always dreamed of riding into battle with you. I always dreamed of having a son like you. Well, I wanted to ask, like, because this happens, like, a lot in comic books and popular culture, like, taking cultures and races and simplifying them down to, like, one characteristic, one aspect, and then... Over the years, people get more educated and it becomes, you know, it's, yeah, the, the education of what those people are actually like and, and what their culture is actually like, it's, it becomes not so simplified. Are there, like, other examples you've seen of um, just, like, say, um, like, Japanese people? I have a bunch of, like, Silver Age comics where, like, the Japanese, the Russians, the Germans, like, they're all, like that one archetype. Yeah, they're always and evil too, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And through time, they become a little more... They get more, more robust as characters. Yeah. yeah. And, well, like, do you, do you draw comparisons? Do you see... Well, for sure, yeah. yeah. So you have to unpack this idea of well, comics history as being also propaganda. 
indigenous peoples always have two representations. If I were to boil it down to the simplest, I could make it. Mm -hmm. um, because women were not often ever in the books except for the sexual maiden, the Pocahontas image. Yeah. I'm going to use just the two male images as, so there's always the evil, like Dancing with Wolves is a perfect example. There's always the evil Indians just over the hill ready to kill you. Yeah. And then there's the Tonto, there's the sidekick, right? And those are the simplistic childlike representations. So uh, that's the American story. The American story is the land is sexy and women will be that representation. I have to conquer that. Mm -hmm. But Indians are just over the hill and I'm scared about them. So I need a special Indian to help me to broker this world and s to be my sidekick. Yeah. That's the Lone Ranger and Tonto story. So that's why those three stories are all about American imperialism or Canadian imperialism for that matter. Um, so there's two things there. There's appropriation, which is theft, meaning you take something and then you exploit, you mine, you exaggerate, and you leave the people in a bloody mess. That's appropriation, theft. But appreciation is to work with people uh, on a story or an image or an idea and leave them better off, right? Uh, that's appreciation. So you might participate within that idea or the image or the object. And uh, so f you might see that, for example, there's, um, there's uh, lots of people who work with communities to bring their stories and publish them in books, right? So traditional stories into books. Um, I think a really good example would be Scott Henderson, right? So Scott Henderson's a local illustrator, worked with David Robertson. A lot of people think that David Robertson does his own illustrations, even though Dave would be the first person to tell you that Scott's the one that does yeah. it. But Scott is a non-native guy who has become this major force in indigenous literature today because he has been really the image pieces, the image creator for David's work. And uh, Scott is not an appropriator because he takes, he doesn't deal with David, but he also does his own research works with other indigenous writers like me. I've mm -hmm. worked with him on stories as well. Other indigenous people, I think uh, Kate Vermette, he's done a story for mm -hmm. Kate Vermette. Um, and he always listens twice as much as he speaks. And he's a really, I mean, you've had him on the podcast. You know yeah. what kind of guy Scott is. Scott's the kind of guy that's an appreciator. And so he always leaves, he always adds to the writer that he's working with. And he's also willing to... Uh, modify, uh, change, redo. And that's why when he I was first worked with... Nominated for an Eisner Award for Blanket of Butterflies with Richard Van Kemp. That's right, yeah. yeah. Like, that's a great example as yeah. well. That's another great uh, comic book, uh, Blanket of Butterflies. And that's a story about a samurai who comes back to uh, a northern community to reobtain uh, his, the family's armor that has been stolen from their community in Japan. And there's this really interesting northern story, and um, Scott tells it in such a beautiful way that it's not an appropriation at all. It's an appreciation of that culture in the north, and you got to spend time. you got to earn that. Is it fair to say that because comics are uh, a collaborative medium, it's much easier to be an appreciator because you are working with another voice? Right. Like yeah. he I mean, he's the first to say and he said it on the podcast that sometimes he doesn't know how he should represent that. And he gets nervous and he has to do a bunch of research and he has to sift through the Internet for the non-racially uh, like just the flat out racist representation of indigenous culture to find a face or something he can use as a reference. And that it's really hard for him. 
Yeah, yeah and I, you can screw up too. I mean, yeah. like just because I'm an indigenous writer doesn't mean that I know all indigenous cultures, right? So right. I wrote a, uh, I wrote, I co-wrote a comic book called The Lockley, Loxley's and Confederation with Renegade. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I didn't really participate in the book because what happened was is they wanted to they wanted to tell a story about Confederation. It was part two of the Loxley series that they have. Yeah. So they told the Loxleys and the War of eighteen twelve. Yeah. I really didn't like that book at all. I told Alexander, the publisher, how much I disliked it when he was at the Comic Con in Winnipeg, and he just sort of remembered me. So when he was putting Confederation together. Uh, they had about three or four pages in the entire 140-page book about Canada's confederation. Four pages were Indigenous people. And I think he sort of realized, oh, I can't have a book about confederation without Indigenous people. As I told you before, you can't tell the story of Canada with Indigenous people or what have you done. Right. Uh, and so he invited me to participate at the back end. The story had already been completed, and now I, my job was to get Indigenous parts in there. Right. And I couldn't do it because I said to Alexander, you can't, you can't just add Indigenous people, like sprinkle it on top and, and right. you've got Canada. That's, the, that's exactly the problem in the first place. Right. So what I did was I rewrote the entire story, all 140 pages. Uh, and I put in pages. Uh, I redid the beginning and the end. Um, I redid all of the different elements. Like, for example, there was a story about Sir Johnny MacDonald being on a train traveling across Canada trying to pass the word about Quebec and et cetera. And uh, I added pieces into that story where they were passing by Indigenous people, uh, Indigenous children on a reserve. And they were passing by Indigenous children at a, at a residential school. And that is exactly the story of Canada that needed to be told. Right. Because you can't tell that story without Indigenous people being uh, shown that their lands were invaded, they were placed into residential school, and then cast aside in the great project of the country. Right. So... That's appreciation. That's teaching a person that you're working with. Right. While that story still is not perfect, I think I got it to the best that I could because, like right. I said, it was a very interesting project and it was, um, I was very proud to be a part of it. It just, uh, what you'd want is you'd want to involve Indigenous peoples from day one, not day 123. Right. But in retrospect, you know, Alexander is a pretty uh, uh, measured individual. Like, he heard you. And then wanted to do something. Yeah, as well, a I mean, result. have you seen their Arctic comic series? It's yeah. really awesome. Right. I mean, but that was Indigenous peoples operating from day one. Right. And uh, when I was, I just participated in doing uh, Jeff Martin's. Uh, Jeff Martin has a series called Redcoats, and he did Redcoats Part Two. Right. But Redcoats Part One had almost no Indigenous people in it. It's a story about the War of eighteen twelve again without right. Indigenous people. The main actors in that story are Indigenous people because without Tecumseh, we're all flying American flags right now. Right. Uh, and so, uh, so then Jeff Martin includes me on day one on different elements, and we did Redcoats Part Two. Uh, he had his story, and then I influenced his story, or he influenced my story with, with a sort of collaborative means that I tell the indigenous version of Redcoats, as, as <laughs> alongside there his story of Redcoats. And it's I, I'm pretty proud of that book. It's even though uh, you know I'd say it's twenty twenty percent of it is my creation. Um, it, I'm pretty proud that it's a, it's a, it was a, a collaborative means that for us to tell a story. Well, and again, just reaching out to try and find that other, the missing part of the voice, not pretend, not making it up. Right? I think that's the way that you should do it. But I've, m m the best stories that I've ever told are the stories that I worked collaboratively. So Scott Henderson and I did a small little story um, about the oil sands of Alberta together. And it was just a four, four pager, but we worked every single panel together. <laughs> 
Alpha team, take the left side of the building. Delta team, cover the right side. Moving into position, now. Says those services are setting up around the building. I think we have to address an elephant in the room here, which is that, and it, it's, it's a multifaceted one, that a lot of people hearing this who are non-Indigenous would say it would be much easier for me as a creative person to just leave it all out. I don't know how to address it. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know even how to ask the question without feeling like an idiot, right? They would just, they'd have all that baggage and say, listen, I'm just going to leave it out. And I think that that's happening a lot too, is that people are leaving it out these days because they know better. You know, they'd rather leave it out entirely than include it and be wrong and called out on being wrong, especially in modern internet culture. Right? I think that's a danger that, that is definitely there. So what would you say to those people who are worried about that? What's a good first step for them to say, okay, I can still include this, or this is a step I should make to reach out, or this is a person that maybe I should check with, or this is a resource I could look some things up in. What's yeah. a, well, what I would say is that that's a symptom of trauma. <laughs> and so a yeah, symptom sure. of trauma is paralysis. Yeah. When people are too scared to do anything at all, yeah. that means that they, um, the, the paralysis doesn't help any conversations right. because the outcome of violence is silence. That's the, the worst outcome of violence is that no one talks about it. Right. And then the violence continues. Right? So I would say that if you're going to be a part of this project of engaging reality, and the reality is, is that we're all in this project, this community, this treaty together, uh, you have to engage the reality is that indigenous peoples are the fastest growing population in the country. Uh, we're entering workforces, we're entering um, societies where we're already a major part of cities such as Winnipeg and Saskatoon and Thunder Bay and Edmonton. And to deal with the reality of our communities is that if you erase indigenous people, if you don't do anything at all, then you're part of the problem, not the solution. Yeah. Now, that being said, I also appreciate the notion that you might get it wrong. Yeah. And I say, exactly. I say, embrace that uh, possibility, but also understand that there are many ways that you cannot get it wrong, which is that you engage people, you talk to people, you do your, you know, you cross your T's and you dot your I's and you do the research that, to work with Indigenous communities to try to tell those stories in meaningful ways because in the end of the day, all we are really talking about is the world that we live in. Um, every comic book is about this universe, this world that we I inhabit, and whether it be a story that's called fantasy or a story that's called nonfiction, it's all ultimately about our experiences as human beings, uh, what, what do we think, how do we feel, and all of that has to do with relationships, and whether it be relationships with each other or relationships with the land, or relationships with the future or the past, all of those things are embodied. Um, if we do it in a positive way, then we come out better off at the end of it. Stories are, can either create the world or destroy the world. And I want to create stories that create the world, that, that create positivity and engage violence and resist and, and create possibility, not end possibility. So. I would say that if you are a writer and you are telling a story about anything, uh, Indigenous people should be a part of it. But that takes work. It's not easy because you have 150 years, 500 plus years 
to deal with, and that has been not very pretty. That's been violent. That's been involved. That's involved removal. That's involved uh, genocide. To overcome that is not going to happen in one day. It's probably not even going to happen in your lifetime. So therefore, you, all you can do is your step. You take a step, and that step might be to work with someone on a page or a panel. Um, and then that page or panel turns into two pages and two panels. And then pretty soon you're telling a story collaboratively with an individual that you respect and admire and, and your story is better off as a result because you're not just telling a story about indigenous erasure anymore, you're telling a story about collaboration and reconciliation. Right, and your own actions can be the story that matters too, right? Like um, if you are working on a story with somebody, like it doesn't have to be about indigenous Storytelling doesn't have to have no, an indigenous have character. Story at it all, can yeah. be illustrated by an indigenous person and just be about superheroes smashing monsters in the face. That's fine, but you're including people in the creative process and allowing that voice to come through. <clears throat> well, most indigenous creators, I told you before that they, uh, some people are making money at this, right? right? But I would say that almost every single indigenous author I know donates time or money to their community right. as a part of reciprocity or responsibility. We're taught that in the lodge that you have to lay tobacco if you're going to take anything, right? You're, you have to give a gift to get a gift. And that's what treaty's all about, right? That's, uh, so when, uh, when we created Manitowable, Warren Carey and I put the first uh, indigenous anthology, historical anthology of Manitoba. We started with Pegwis' speeches way back in the late, 1800s and then we went all the way up to the present we even included petroforms and um, original scrolls from Manitoba rock paintings we talked about indigenous literature in Manitoba as being a spectrum that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years and even thousands of years and we donated every single cent of it to the Aboriginal or the indigenous writer of the year award at the Manitoba book awards because we don't we don't take any money from that. We told every creator that if you donate this to the book, all the money will go to create new writers. So we've created writing programs for young people. We don't we've donated hundreds of books to schools and to people in prisons for their children. Uh, and we've also created the Indigenous Writer of the Year Award, the Manitoba Book Award, so that we hold up three writers every year that in, are Indigenous and the, that are doing projects that 50% of it is writing projects and 50% is how have you built other writers. That's what I think uh, Indigenous practices of books really should be about. Really, what is it? What it really is about, which is about creating writers as much as you have benefited from writing. So I feel like we've totally cut Justin out of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little outside my wheelhouse. So I've been content just to listen twice and think, talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen <laughs> twice. Talk less. That's amazing. And I think that's it, right? Like if this was a conversation, like this is a conversation you and I have had a number of times, but not a conversation that you and I have had a number of times. And so for it to be new territory to jump in and be like, oh, well, I'm the host of this podcast. I know everything about it keep quiet that's the wrong-headed approach right well the one thing that i've like i've gone to calgary con a number of times now for renegade right so <laughs> sat at the table uh you know, worked you know the, mostly the lockley's Loxley series but brought my daughter there and so um one of the things that's really helped me is i would not be in comics if i hadn't met gregory at the workshop how many years ago, seven, eight years ago, yeah, or whatever it was. Long, yeah. And 
walk by your table, Justin, and see this like massive throng of people looking to invest themselves in your work. Like, like the fact that we have these, this body of people in Winnipeg who are work with mentor and then every once in a while I'll bring on a podcast when they feel sorry for them. <laughs> <laughs> no, when it, I'm just, but you know, but how went over the sun, it's really shady in here all the time, but have a, uh, be so generous to work with people who, um, I didn't have any idea how to do the work. And, you know, Jen Storm, I think, is a good example of Jen has been mentored by you, and um, she now feels she's now heading up a series. Yeah. She's heading up her own series at High Water Press on Indigenous superheroes of today, meaning real-life figures of today, people like Daphne Ojig, and I've pitched a, a comic book on Kent Monkman, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But, like, that kind of generosity is is how we move forward. And uh, it might be at times listening, but it also might be times questioning. And both those things have happened. And I really appreciate it. Like, I really appreciate it when you have this, you have the bravery to have this conversation because to be silent is to continue the violence. Well, this has been Super Pulp Science where we, I hope, have listened twice as much as we've spoken. Um, inviting you to join the fight and make comments.